who can come and challenge the tradition? If you follow the tradition, you will actually start immediately appreciating the various nuances that are there. There are of course men who participate in this pilgrimage and they are called Ayyappans. But there are also women that participate in the 41 day process. If you are not in the tradition, you simply cannot appreciate it. Which is why what you see in Kerala, which is actually a very left leaning state, uh, very empowered women, a whole host of protests uh, from what would otherwise be considered a godless society and a whole host of women protesting. And thanks uh, to all of you for coming here in Srijan Foundation for, for having organized this talk. I thought in terms of how to frame the presentation itself and I thought that there are different perspectives that, uh, that exist. And therefore I called it uh, rationalizing skewed perspectives. It is really that look at the different perspectives and see whether there is a way to actually look at them harmoniously. It's not one against the other but actually can all those exist simultaneously. If I could do a quick straw poll, so to say, uh, how many of you believe that the restriction in Sabrimala is good and must stay? If you could just give your, put your hands up. And how many of you would believe that the restriction is actually bad and should go away? Alright, so it's a, it's a, it's a good mix. Um, when In school, when you look at, uh, there's a concept called relativity. Relativity in the sense of, uh, there is a train standing on a platform, there is a man standing on the platform, there is another man standing in a compartment uh, and the man is playing with a ball inside the compartment. He actually throws the ball up and down and catches it. To both it looks as if the ball is traveling in a straight line and then the train begins to move. Um, the man in the train is still playing with the ball, it's still going up and down but now something different begins to happen. For the person inside the train compartment, the ball is still going up and down. It's a straight line. But for the person standing on the platform, it's actually going in a parabola. It's not going straight. It's actually going like this because the train is moving in this fashion. For him to catch the ball again because he's actually moved by the time the ball has come up and down, the ball ought to have traveled like this. So, he, so the person standing on the platform will see it going in a parabola. The point that I'm trying to make is... Uh, it is possible for two truths to exist. Uh, we need to recognize that both those truths could actually exist. Uh, for the person standing on the platform, he cannot conceive how somebody could sell an argument to say that this is a ball just going up and down. For the person sitting in the train compartment, he cannot understand how somebody can say that this is a moving in a parabola because his personal experience is going up and down. And that's to my mind exactly what describes what's happening in the Sabrimala context. So if we sort of dive into the presentation, but keep that perspective in mind is that there are two perspectives, both very true for the people that observe them. Uh, and therefore, how do you sort of rationalize it? So here are the divergent positions uh, on, on the issue. Um, when you look at it from a rationalist perspective, so this is the guy standing on the platform. He actually sees it in straightforward manner. Women are not allowed entry into a temple. What's the reason? There is no logical reason and therefore it is discriminatory. Um, the, and, and all these arguments actually get reflected in the Supreme Court final ruling. Um, the second point uh, that comes forth is that religion is a creation of a patriarchal mindset, has no basis in religion and even if based in religion ought to be outlawed in today's rational world. So the thinking is and this is true for most of us even those of us that go to temples and are religious in nature is that why does religion exist? It's because man created religion because the caveman saw lightning and thunder and fire and got scared and started giving divine attributes to it and that's how religion came into existence. And really because men in those days were perceivably stronger or at least that's how history talks about it was stronger physically. They were the ones that put together concepts of religion and therefore the superiority of the male species was sort of embedded in, in their creation of religion. And therefore, even if this is true in religion, 
the restriction in Sabrina Mala is true in religion, whether it deserves to continue to exist in today's modern and rational world. And so really, that's the rationalist perspective, I would say. If you look at the perspective of the people that support the tradition, one, you will often hear them say, though they don't explain it very well, they say that the restriction is not discriminatory. And it, my bet is it is capable of a rational explanation. But really what you hear people say is that it is not discriminatory. The second argument that you hear is it is part of an ancient tradition and therefore ought not to be disturbed because it is going on from time immemorial. So don't actually change something that you don't understand it. And this is true even if it is not fully capable of explanation. So I may not be able to explain why, but just because it is old, don't really change it because you want to change things for the sake of modernity. There is a story around the Sabri Mala, but there are lots of Puranic stories. Most people would say that the Puranic stories are not actually factual in nature. They are stories that have been weaved and embed within it certain natural truths or certain truths in nature. So it's not actually those truths are not visible superficially. And those have been those that knowledge has been transmitted over the generations through the medium of stories. So really, if you follow the stories, you follow a certain principle of science or nature and therefore you have certain benefits that come out of it. And that really is the other way to speak in terms of how do you justify the Sabrimala tradition? How has the tradition itself evolved? Uh, and, and there are some disjuncts here. So I thought it is actually useful to bring it, bring it out. Uh, so one, it is a, a temple that was consecrated or founded by Parashurama. That is the sort of the old legend. And he consecrates it as one of the five, now the term Sasta is a very technical term, but as a Sasta temple. So it's part of the, the tantric tradition that you find in Kerala and in coastal Karnataka. The sage Parshurama then having consecrated it also found a priest who is capable of actually conducting some rituals. That the Ayapa at Sabrimala is a manifestation of intense ascetic or celibate energy and ought to be approached only by those pilgrims whose personal energies are harmonious to the deity. And really that is the underlying construct in which the whole restriction is framed. When you consecrate an idol or you consecrate a deity, there is a certain energy that you infuse into it. It is meant to serve a certain very specific purpose. Uh, and therefore, so unlike the modern temples that we see built today, they are all purpose. So you can go over there and ask for, I want to get married, I want to get a job, I want to have a child, uh, I'm having ABCD trouble. So these are all purpose temples. Uh, these kind of follow specific outcome oriented temples. So really, if you, I mean, to give a short analogy, so what is the outcome that you want and the deity is consecrated for that specific outcome. And therefore, to to, to participate in that energy, to work with that energy, your personal energies must be brought into a certain shape and form where they work. If your personal energies are not, one, it doesn't work for you. It may have an adverse consequence for you, but it could also have an impact on the energy that is there, which is consecrated. And that's really the underlying basis on which the whole tantric system, the Sasta system is functioning. Now, the Tradition of a 40 day, 41 day vratham, the, and now the vratham is actually fa not just fasting, but it is a whole host of different things that you need to do. Uh, this has existed forever. Uh, the purpose, as I said, is to transform the energy of an individual and make it harmonious so that you are actually able to participate uh, in an interface with the deity itself. So the people that undertake the vratham the way it is meant to be and therefore go for the uh, pilgrimage go with a certain, I would say, mystical sort of outcome in mind. Now, this is where things get mixed, but you also hear the story of uh, Manikandan, a prince in the Pandalam dynasty who is considered an avatara, uh, went to Sabrimala, he undertook the Vratham uh, and then merged with the deity. Now, really, this is not 12th century AD is not time immemorial. 
it is after Christ and it is certainly after the Prophet. And in fact, in this story, he's got a friend who is a Muslim. So really, it is the post-Prophet period. So it is not, it is probably medieval time legend. It is not an ancient legend coming from time immemorial. What the pilgrims try to do is they try to replicate the Manikandan journey. And Manikandan has explained the process for how to do it to his father. And so therefore, they follow that exact same process. The important thing that lots of people seem to miss out, and it's actually reflected, you pick it up in the Supreme Court ruling, is that there are of course men who participate in this pilgrimage, and they are called Ayyappans. But there are also women that participate in the 41-day process. And we'll come to how can they participate in the 41-day process, but they can. And so therefore, it is not an anti-woman restriction, I would say. It is a restriction against those that cannot follow the Vratam or do not follow the Vratam. It is not. And if a woman is not able to for ABCD reasons and a man may not be able to follow for ABCD reasons, they are both restricted uh, in terms of the tradition. The completion of the Vratam is followed by tying of a, a, a bundle, which a pilgrim carries to Sabrimala. He then climbs and this is the other important element to actually grasp meant to climb certain steps which is they call it the sacred 18 steps or the padina to padi uh, and then enters the temple to get a deity uh, darshan important thing is that the temple has two entrances uh, and this is the entrance that a pilgrim is meant to take there is a northern entrance where you can, which I had alluded to, which you can enter the temple without ascending the 18 steps. And this is available to those that do not carry the, the sacred bundle. So this is, in some ways, you could think of it in terms of for the non-pilgrims. I mean, you can have a pilgrimage to Sabrimala and you can have visitations to Sabrimala. And they are, so therefore, these two exist in, in, in that sense. Now, important things about Sabrimala, it's not a regular temple. So, they do not do daily pujas here. The temple is open only on very specific days or periods. There is a mandala puja, which is November, December, it sort of goes into January. It goes into the Makara Veliku or the Makar Sankranti as we call it. They also open it on the Vishu uh, festival, which is mid-April. And then there is a tradition of opening it in the first five days of each Malayalam calendar year. Now, the interesting point is that the Devasam board, uh, when it made its argument in the Supreme Court and it's recorded there, that the restriction on women of menstrual age is only for the pilgrimage period. It is for 1, 2 and 3. There is no clear restriction in tradition according to the board to get into the temple in the first five days of the Malayalam calendar year, not ascending the 18 steps, but using the northern entrance. Now, traditionally, women of in, in menstrual age never went to the temple. However, those outside the menstrual age, so either you are too young or you are too old, which is when you can actually undertake the Vratam, can go. The exception to this certain sort of uh, uh, tradition has been uh, mothers attending the first right eating ceremony of their children. Now, this is not part of the pilgrimage. This happened, this used to happen in the first five days of the month and they used to use, as I said, the northern entrance for the temple. But again, it was very, it was, it was an exception because this is not a temple that was easy to reach or to get to. Now, let's look at how the 41-day Ratham actually works. Uh, so, the Ratham is capable of being interrupt, you can sort of dislodge yourself from the Ratham two ways. There is a voluntary way, which is actually you violate one of the restrictions. And there is an involuntary way that you can actually, that can stop you from going there. Now, involuntary, as the word suggests, is actually not within your control. Just like for women of menstrual age, menstruation is not within their control. And I am not getting into people popping pills and delaying their menstrual cycles. But really, it is not within their control. But for a man who is doing the Ratham, if there is a birth or a death in the house, he also gets disqualified. So really, there are things about the Vratam that work differently. Uh, it, it is not necessarily, it's not just about 
a certain kind of a woman but it's really about who can or cannot follow it and sometimes there are things which are not in your control that actually put you out of the Vratam period. So really the, the tradition was that in the uh, Mandala Puja most people will try to go at that period and if they don't then they actually have to redo the 41 day period and then they try and go during the other periods when the temple is open. I can't explain really in if you talk in terms of modern scientific terms I can't explain why if there is a birth in the family or a death in the family that your Vratham breaks and you are stopped from going. I cannot explain it beyond a point. I need to get into a certain energy tradition discussion really to, to, to try and explain this. Similarly, I can't really in that logical sense explain how menstruation will break your Vratham. So, the thing is since it's got to be a continuous 41 day period, there are things that will actually stop it. There is no real rational explanation in terms of modern day science. But if you look at the tantric traditions, if you look at some of the older uh, spiritual traditions, they have certain explanations. And the scriptures really say, uh, to making, making this discussion sort of easier, scriptures say that when you are having in, in, your, in your menstrual period, do not undertake intense penance. So, don't fast, don't do things that are vigorous in nature. It's because it recognizes, the tradition recognizes, the woman's energies are slightly lower in those periods. And uh, as a man, I can't personally experience it. But there are a bunch of you that are women and probably know this a lot better through personal experience. But the energy levels are slightly lower. And it therefore says that do not undertake that sort of intense penance or fasting. or I don't know whether that makes sense today and maybe my own view is that science, modern science will catch up with some of these traditions and how they work. Uh, but really that is how it explained. And therefore, if a woman's ratham can be broken and she is prohibited from or restricted from entering, so the same goes for the man. He can also on account of involuntary things be stopped from getting into the temple. There is an important element that there could be an adverse effect if you do not follow the Vratham and you visit the deity, adverse effect on the pilgrim, it could also have an adverse effect on the energy of the deity. The court, not in this particular ruling, but in various other rulings also recognizes the concept that deities in a temple are required, you are required to keep them energized to following a certain set of rituals. Now, these rituals are coming from whenever the deity was consecrated. But the guys that consecrate the deity very often know what kind of rituals are meant to be followed. And consecration is a separate discussion. If you do not follow the rituals, the deity or the energy in that deity will get dissipated. Initially, it will go down in strength. And ultimately, it will you will only be left with a rock or a piece of idol over there. And that is a meaningless piece of idol because that... In our tradition, in our manner of approaching a certain deity and deity being different from the almighty God, a certain deity, the energy might no longer exist. So, really you end up worshipping a piece of rock which is useless. So, when you talk in terms of desecration of a deity, by non-following or non-compliance of rituals, it is a notion that has also been accepted by the Supreme Court and is a function of law in our country for a good since the 1960s or 70s, whenever those rulings were there. But that, that's actually been recognized. Now, here are things that might have weighed in some of the discussions. And at least when you read the Supreme Court ruling, it doesn't sort of clearly point to it. But it seems to suggest that these have had impacts. So, we say it's an temple since time immemorial. But the temple was rebuilt in the 1950s because there were acts of arson and vandalism. The idol was broken, etc. So, there was a new idol that was consecrated. So, something really in a rational sense, the question that pops up in your mind is that uh, this is really a 1950s deity. Why are you saying that this is an ancient tradition? There is no old consecration over here. So, what are you talking about? What, what this misses out is that, and I think it you find it in certain parts of northern India, but it is very common in southern India, in peninsular India is the notion of reconsecration of a deity. So, you do it once every 12 years. Uh, because why, the question is, why is it done? And there is a certain very specified strict process needed to be followed. It is not just the process. 
the people that do the consecration need to also do some penance before they come to do it. There is a certain energy play that happens in our tradition that is involved with a certain consecration process. So, a deity, the recognition is that there are various energies post-consecration over a period of time, all sorts of energies and distortions creep in and there is a need to revitalize that energy and therefore, the tradition of reconsecration. So, really the fact that this particular deity was reconsecrated in 1950s does not really hold so much water because in almost all temples, there is a process of reconsecration that happens. So, every temple, however old, has been reconsecrated, there is a reconsecration process that happens every 12 years. Now, really, what happens is that if you have a set of judges that do, are not focused on some of these things, they start viewing it like the man standing on the platform watching a man in a compartment play the ball. So, he is actually seeing it in a parabola. So, his view is that this is a parabola. The ball is moving in a parabolic shape. Whereas, the guy sitting in the compartment is saying that, what are you talking about? I actually am throwing the ball up and down and it is in a straight line. And this is where things start to begin to become a little fuzzy. Uh, and therefore, the need to recognize that both of those are truths for those two individuals. But in 1955 is where the some board issues two notifications. Now, interestingly, it says, it has two elements. It says, male pilgrims that do not observe the vratham are restricted. It also says women between 10 and 55, assuming that they are in a menstrual age and today that those parameters are also changing in the modern world. But in the 1950s, that is possibly truer than it is today. These are the two categories of people that are restricted. So, it is not a women only notification. It is a notification clearly about people that do not observe the Vratham. For various reasons, some as I said voluntarily do not follow the Vratham, some involuntarily cannot follow the Vratham. It is not within their control. So, the notification also base themselves on the fundamental principle underlying the Pratishta. So, it is also saying that this is based on what existed since time immemorial. So, this is Pratishta is consecration really. So, at the time of consecration, what are the rules that were laid and therefore, we following those rules, this is what we do. Now, two other interesting elements. One argument was that the Tantri had dreams regarding strict observance of the restriction. So, really, the other one was, um, so the, the Kerala tradition has got something called Deva Prashnam. So, they have got Prashnams, um, you use small shells and you sort of do some sort of an astrology with it. Uh, but they did Deva Prashnams and the response from the deity in terms of the Deva Prashnam is the deity does not want women of menstrual age entering the temple. When you make it very forcefully, um, so, as lawyers, most of us understand. So, you actually have to not make outlandish arguments. If you do make it, you have to figure out how am I going to rationalize it. And these are instances when people are take to these kinds of arguments a little more. And other than this, they are, uh, there were arguments like, uh, oh, the deity celibacy will get disturbed. As if, as if there is a human deity and then the natural reaction is that how can, if God decides he wants to be celibate, how can a woman actually alter any of that? Not to say have a woman outside the menstrual period, how come she does not have that sort of an impact on somebody's celibacy? So, really a whole host of irrational sort of arguments. I mean, alright, you have them inbuilt in your Puranic lore, but when you go to a court of rationality, how far do you push some of those arguments? Because they are rational arguments that you can actually use. And I think that is where, uh, that is where some of the traditionalists lost the plot. Uh, and these arguments were specifically, so the court got focused on these arguments rather than looking at the rational arguments. And we therefore have the outcome that we have. Now, let us look at the problems with the debate. So, there are two or three problems with the debate. I would say the first problem is that there is a presumption that the restriction against women is discriminatory. And so, therefore, once I presume that it is discriminatory, the whole debate goes to, is this the discrimination that is capable of justification? 
and so therefore that's the route it takes. The point that I would make is that, and as lots of the traditionalists have made, is that the restriction itself is not discriminatory. It follows a certain path. I may or may not be able to explain it fully in modern scientific terms, and I may have an explanation somewhere else. But it is not discriminatory and almost everybody that you hear including on television debates will tell you that it is not discriminatory. They are all there not, not, not able to do is to explain why it is not discriminatory. So let us look at as a lawyer I said let us look at the terms discriminatory drawing a distinction which is factual in nature. And so therefore you look at discrimination and a whole host of case law on what is discrimination but broadly you would say uh, when you discriminate against somebody you distinguish, so there is a reasonable distinguishing or there can be an unfair distinguishing. And so therefore, in my mind, if you, if the, if the set of arguments were presented in the more theological way, in the manner in which the temple was consecrated, I think that you would have made a strong case to say that this is not discriminatory. It is actually drawing a distinction between the kind of energies that people are meant to carry and there are certain kinds of people that actually cannot carry that energy. Now, once you presume that a certain practice is discriminatory, the debate goes in another direction. So, my first point being that it should not be discriminatory and really you would have won the argument over there. But let us assume for sake of argument that it is indeed discriminatory. So, once you say that it is discriminatory, then the court moves to certain specific articles in the constitution and it says is therefore this discrimination can I still hold it to be constitutional or not is it unconstitutional the mostly all forms of discrimination are unconstitutional there are certain exceptions that get carved out one of the carve outs which might have allowed it because there is some case law to justify this is that a certain practice even if it may be slightly questionable in terms of discriminatory or not is it an essential feature of that religion and if it is an essential feature of the religion maybe I have a cow out that this is a discrimination that I will allow which kind of gets us into two particular elements because really the debate goes into is it essential to Hinduism and my question is what really is Hinduism because is it one faith in the in the construct of and uh, in the construct of say Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, Zoroastrianism etc or is it a multiple set of faiths uh, that got labeled uh, as an agglomeration merely because you actually existed in a certain geography. Now, if you have multiple faiths over there that are labeled with one term Hinduism, how are you going to find the commonality over there? So, what is going to be the essential feature of that faith? There is going to be no essential feature because each one of those traditions will have a certain separate and distinct essential feature. So, to say that and, and, and the court in its rulings actually observes that if this tradition is not followed, in, Hinduism is not going to get devastated or not going to get altered. Of course, it won't get altered because there are multiple traditions, but this particular tradition will get devastated. It will be destroyed. So, I thought let us just take a quick look at really in, uh, in one sense what is Hinduism and, and when you decide that or when you, when you debate on the basis that Hinduism is a monolithic religion, you actually come to a certain different consequence. And throughout our debates, whether it is in court or it is in public discourse, we actually view Hindus as, I mean there is Hindu nationalism, so as if there is one religion that requires a nationalism. So really what is Hinduism? So let us dive back a little and I think this is not something that I am saying, lots of people have said it. Since ancient times, it is actually a geographical description of the land, that this is Hindu land. The people who reside over here are Hindus and that essentially was, I mean I would say that just like you look at people who reside in China as Chinese, people who live in Iran as Iranians, who live in Greece as Greeks, 
those who lived in India, India is an English term, but were called Hindus. Even today, some of the languages in the Middle East and in China tend to use the term Hindu for anybody that comes out of India, regardless of their religion. So, the term is religious agnostic. It is geographical in description. Now, what the Europeans did is that they continued to use the nomenclature Hindu, except they gave it a religious connotation. So, they defined it or they tried to explain it in terms of segregation. So, they said all the native religions are Hindu and then they are the foreign religions. So, you actually view it differently and therefore, they define it in law as follows is that everybody that lives in India, excluding Muslim, Parsi, Jew, Christian uh, and those are the sort of exclusions, but the definition of an Hindu in law is by exclusion. It's not. So, it, it, it actually follows the logical pattern of how traditionally you viewed the term Hindu, how it got embedded into law and once it got embedded into law, the same construct is followed in the constitution. Now, it, it then includes, so therefore, Hindu is everybody in India, including Sikh, Jain, Buddhist, etc., excluding Muslim, Christian, Parsi or Jew. So, therefore, when you, when you view it in that sense, you get pushed into, over the years, we have gotten pushed into thinking of Hinduism as a mono, monolithic religion. It is one faith, there should be one central text. Essentially, you are trying to view the people that live in India in the manner in which you view yourselves. This is sort of the European approach uh, to India. And we very happily, since we were sort of modernizing away from our medieval practices, very happily following uh, and Europeanizing ourselves. So, we sort of went down that path. And so, therefore, it does not actually figure into the debate. It certainly did not figure into the Sabrimala debate in the Supreme Court is that when you look to find essential features of Hinduism, what are the features that you are looking for? And I would like to ask anybody in this crowd or anywhere else, please give me five points or three things that are actually essential features of Hinduism that if you do not follow, that the religion would stand destroyed or altered significantly. They do not exist. It is because there is no central, there is no essential feature. And a fundamental basis for the Supreme Court's ruling is and this is the majority judgment saying that if you take away this tradition, it does not distort the essential feature. And so, therefore, the whole Supreme Court ruling is on a misplaced premise, on a misplaced fundamental notion of what is Hinduism. Let us therefore look at Hinduism itself because I said that it is a agglomeration of various traditions, religions, theologies, etc. But let us just take it, look at it. So, there are what you describe as Hinduism have got a Vedic and a non-Vedic school. You have got an Astic and a Nastic tradition. You have a Jnana, uh, Kriya, Bhakti approach. You have a Shaivite, Vaishnavite and a Shakta tradition. And these are only some of the ones that you would have heard in, in public discourse that I am actually pointing to. You have the Advaita, Advaita, Vishitra, Advaita. I do not know if many of you have heard of the Siddha, Siddha, Tantric and Agora traditions. What these traditions are, and if you look at these traditions carefully, some of them are different, come from different theological constructs. So, these are very, very different from each other. There is a lot more detail that goes into each one of these theologies and traditions. And theologically, it's, these are different constructs. We, I mean, one of the, one of the common notions that most people over here have, and I would assume a lot of us, that the foundational basis for Hinduism is the Vedic principle. But there are actually a whole host of non-Vedic elements that have gotten assimilated into what we believe is Hinduism. So, the Vedas are not necessarily a fundamental construct to all Hindus. There are a whole host of Hindus out there that, yes, the Vedas are there, but we actually follow for us, primacy is in certain other texts, which are non-Vedic texts. <laughs> or certain other practices and traditions. So, the Agama traditions, there will be a debate whether we are part of the Vedic tradition at all or not. Now, with passage of time, what happened is, and these are sort of really ancient. So, when you talk about time immemorial, these are really ancient uh, traditions. Over thousands of years, 
certain schools start getting primacy and it is as all of us would have heard we we were actually a debating society so what would happen is that one person would go carry his philosophy to another village debate over there whoever wins either everybody converts to there or jumps into the well or the river or something like that so really there were different theologies which were in play uh and there were frequent debates within these and some would at times lose some would at times win there would also be the element of which king follows what tradition and so therefore when ashoka followed buddhism india primarily became a buddhist country so there are there there are these multiple traditions that have existed some over a certain period of time got primacy so the vedic traditions got little more primacy and amongst the vedic tradition the advaitin school got a little more primacy so almost all of us believe that god is omnipresent exists i am god you are god all of us are god uh, that principle is an advaitic tradition it is not really a whole host of other traditions that exist over there that do not accept that as a philosophy so adi shankaracharya went about debating with various people means there were many people who were there who did not accept his philosophy in in those days uh, adi shankara was actually not viewed as uh, as as one of as i would describe a hindu but people say that you are a fake buddhist or you are a buddhist masquerading as a vedic philosopher so really that's the various traditions that have existed and therefore the kind of primacy now when you get the primacy of i don't have an issue that's really how history is panned out i have no complaints against them but really therefore when we start examining what is hinduism today in our mind pops in vedas the vedic tradition in our mind pops in the advaitin tradition and so therefore there are a whole host of observations on the supreme court that will say god does not make the distinction god is a creator in many many indian traditions there is there is no creator god so you start labeling us with these sorts of ideas because they actually come from certain specific uh, theological constructs that you have been sold uh, under under the big label of bringing all religions together and assimilating everybody i mean i uh, no problem with that but when the law starts following those constructs that is where the problem exists so people are individually are free to follow whatever belief systems no complaint about that the interesting element and so i sort of dwell a little more on on hinduism itself the interesting element of the different theologies that constitute hinduism you will see they are vastly different and i would venture to say islam christianity and judaism are actually closer as theologies than a whole host of indian theologies that exist so what's the difference between all of those they just there's a difference of one prophet each so christianity has one prophet extra or one son of god and islam has one prophet extra but otherwise all their prophets are the same and they follow the same god the same theology so from a theological construct they are actually closer as religions whereas the indian tradition has got these vastly different traditions where they are the underlying principles the fundamentals are vastly different now over thousands of years you have incorporated bits and pieces from here and there and you have sort of uh, become a bit of a mishmash but really to therefore look at this agglomeration of theological uh, ritualistic practices in india or religious practices in india as one monolithic religion cannot be more fundamentally flawed and therefore to presume to actually give uh, uh, to to put in place a jurisprudential principle on this basis cannot actually come out correct and which is why what you see in kerala which is actually a very left leaning state uh, very empowered women a whole host of protests uh, from what would otherwise be considered a godless society and a whole host of women protesting and so therefore uh, i thought because we actually see some of this friction both in public space it's not just the courts but we see it amongst political parties nobody knows what real position to take so really how how is it as a state that we are constructed so we say that we are a constitutional state but what does that mean 
I would say that essentially our understanding or our, uh, our impression of secularism is one of a godless state. Now, secularism really can mean that I will not discriminate between religions and there are two ways of not discriminating, one becoming godless as somebody who is to sort of administer or judge you. The other is I will be uh, like, like maybe in the US, I could be a Christian state, but I will actually not make the distinction. No particular religion will get any favors. Uh, but in India, we sort of have gone down the path of the British version of secularism, which is basically a godless state. That is how we are, our whole state has been constructed on the basis of a British constitutional principle and that is what we follow. So, it does not matter if a judge is religious, it does not matter if a judge is a priest because this particular constitution bench had all those in the mix they will take the godless approach because that is how our state has been constructed. Now, when you look at a godless approach, uh, you allow religious freedom, but then you make it subject to all other kinds of fundamental rights. It includes the right of equality, but I do not necessarily have a big problem with that. But the next level that you take it to, you then in that construct and actually most of us as I started at some point in time I alluded to this, think of God as a human fabrication. You think that men have actually fabricated God because you got scared of lightning, thunder, the tiger coming into your cave etc. You were scared of the darkness, so you attributed whatever you are scared of, you attributed an idea of God. So really God is a human fabrication and not a function of fact. And hence, therefore, when you start thinking of it like that, as I said, the Tantri's dream, of course, since God itself is human fabrication, how can your dream be anything but human fabrication? And so is the Deva Prashnam. So, how can that be uh, anything godly? Now, you also take into account, when, when you are the state, you take into account that historically and globally, this is not, there has been some sort of historical prejudice against women. And therefore, this sense is reflected in, so there were three rulings that actually ruled against in the Supreme Court, three judgments against the restriction. There were majority judgment with the two judges, then there were two single judges that also gave. All three of them have got elements of women have been subject to prejudice over the ages. Patriarchy has crept into religion and therefore, those are the reasons uh, why religion has those embedded principles in them and it is the job of the law therefore now to reform it. And so that is the approach that happened in the Supreme Court and they talk about reform in various other religions and various other where, where the law has intervened and, and brought about reform. I think there is a difference between, uh, uh, between issues of, uh, so people equate the sati system and whether it ought to be reformed or not and therefore equation with this. I think you have got to start recognizing the fact that over centuries lots of things that are unhappy will, will come into existence. It may not have religious basis to it. There may be various other basis to why some of those cultural changes happen. But you can't, you sh what you should not do is to try and equate one and use those principles to put down another. And that in, in my mind is really what has happened is that the ideas of untouchability, the ideas of the sati system, all those have been used to actually strike down at this one particular tradition and, and here is where it is important is it is important for us to continue to recognize and constantly reinforce in our minds that we are not one single religion. I mean we do call ourselves Hindus, but we are not one single religion. We are actually a multiplicity of religions various different traditions. Some traditions can have some malices that have crept into them and those could be sort of modified. You have to look at each, uh, each malice to see whether it is justifiable, it is not, where does it come from, is it really discriminatory, does it deserve to exist or not and therefore deal with it separately on an individual case to case basis. If we try and use a broom to sweep all the dust from the floor, 
we will stop making that distinction. So, we start treating ourselves as a monolithic religion as soon as we do that. Now, the perspective of the traditionalists. The rules governing operation of the divine energy in Sabrimala comes from nature. Religious tradition merely recognizes the same and utilizes those energies for the benefit of mankind. So, really, when and it goes back to the whole consecration idea is that you actually tap into certain natural energies that exist, you, you energize a particular deity and you use that deity in a particular specific fashion. Now, you look at there are specific deities all over India. Some you will go for treatment of leprosy, some you will go for treatment of some other disease. Third one you will go if you are professionally doing badly. Fifth one you will go for if you have got a stomach problem. Many, many of these ancient deities have been consecrated for specific outcomes. You go there only for those specific outcomes. You don't go there, it's not a general good for all thing that you go to. And so, therefore, and the basis for this is that a certain kind of energy that exists in nature has been consecrated in that particular shrine or in that particular idol. And therefore, there is a certain set of laws by which you approach it. Now, take an example, you want to make kheer. So, you put some milk, you put some rice, you put it on a boil of water, you put it on boil and then you run out of sugar. So, you say, now what do I do for sugar? So, you say, oh, I see one white little granular thing over there, you pick up a bunch of salt and put it in. It will not give you kheer. It may look similar, but it may have a certain specific behavior in nature which may alter the outcome for you. So, really a lot of these old Indian traditions, they lay out the process by which you can actually get to a certain kind of benefit. What has happened over a period of time is we have started diluting some of these. So, we have started using salt instead of sugar because both look white, both are granular. And therefore, we are not having the kind of outcomes that we will, uh, we will generally want to. The need for the Vratham is exactly in that sense, is that if you are going to a Sabrimala deity, it is actually meant for spiritual upliftment. You don't go there for any other purpose. It is an ascetic energy. It is a celibate energy. That means you have actually, you pulled in all your, the energy in nature and there are multiple energies in nature, but this particular energy is pulled into itself a certain kind of power that comes from uh, a certain functional behavior. And therefore, when individuals approach that deity, that is what you need to do. If you, if you do not do that and you go and approach the deity and multiple of you go and approach the deity, not only will you suffer, but the deity's energy will get eroded and that is the underlying principle. So, it is not patriarchy in play and it is not discriminatory and it is not anti-women. It is anti not following the Ratham. Now, rules of nature were traditionally built in the Puranic lore and it made easy for common man. But these rules hid within themselves certain truths of nature. Now, this is something that I said earlier, but, but really that is the way some of our traditions, some of our culture has evolved, some of our religious practices have evolved, is that you will find people who will give you the raw truth, if you are able to absorb it, and you will find some people who will give you a story. And the truth would be embedded in that story. And very often to get the raw truth, you can't actually, it's not as if you are walking into a library that you can act. When they explain the raw truth to you, they want you to actually appreciate it fully. So, you must be capable of appreciating it fully. It requires you to actually be in a certain space where you can absorb some of those ideas. You can experience some of those ideas and not see it just as a hand down from somebody, but you actually experience the truth yourself. And so, that is how you will find. So, very often you will find people will not give you the raw truth straight away because they believe they use the term that you don't deserve to do it, but it's really that you're incapable of dealing with that raw truth. And that's the approach that some of our traditionalists carry. So a lot of people embedded in the tantric tradition or the Sri Vidya tradition will actually not speak of these things very easily because they, they believe that you will one not appreciate it, you will not understand it and you will probably subject it to ridicule. So one of the easy ways to hitting out on all of these traditions is to bring ridicule to it. So, call it superstition, ridicule it, 
demean it. So all of us don't want to look ridiculous. So we actually start taking, oh, these are ridiculous superstitious stuff. But that is how you start killing tradition and that is what pushes the traditionalists into a narrower box. They stop speaking of it more and more. So you really have to go look out for people like this, find them, but they will be people that will give them to you. Not all our knowledge is in scriptures. Lot of our knowledge is in oral tradition. So you will actually find it as a hand down, mouth to mouth, generation to generation. You can actually find these people that can explain the tradition to you in a longer discussion. They require you to be sincere, they require you to be appreciative and very often they require you to have already travelled a certain path before they are willing to divulge that piece of knowledge. So really, if you go and, the way I would look at it, you go and talk to a mathematical professor in, uh, in IIT and you say that teach my fourth class child mathematics, he'll throw you out of the house. Why does he throw you out of the house? He is not being discriminatory. Your four-year-old child is simply not in his level of play. He cannot interact with that person. The same thing happens with the guys who hold this traditional knowledge. They simply are incapable of dealing with you. They lose patience. They really don't and they know that they will lose patience. So, they don't want to deal with you. So, they will not share that information. It is not a piece of library that you can walk into, pick up a book and start reading and understanding everything. And the same holds true for many, many of our scriptures. Is that our traditions standing on the platform, you simply cannot appreciate how can that guy sitting in the compartment see the ball go straight up and down. It is not possible because you are actually seeing it go like this. So therefore, you are actually seeing women being discriminated against. Because it is incapable, nobody is explaining it to you. And relativity is a very important element, particularly in my mind, it's a, it's a modern notion. But it is very, very helpful in trying to get us to appreciate a whole host of traditions that we get subjected to. So this is kind of, this slide has got a lot of stuff that I actually already spoke about. So this is temple construction and consecration of deities. Uh, so I don't know, I mean... Some of us know it and many of us don't know it, but in the popular discourse, it simply does not exist because if you want to found a temple, what's that? Just get a piece of land, build a building over there, install an idol and that's it. Start doing puja, that's... But according to the tradition, which is the agamas that are involved with how does a temple get constructed, it is highly detailed. It will talk about different parts of the temple, what sizes, what direction, what kind of material, a whole host of things. It is in, in many, many ways the reason why it is so detailed and why it must be actually followed to the T is because it is actually trying to capture an energy principle. So when you, when you actually build a temple following those agamas, following them exactly the way, do not use salt for sugar. If you do things like that, you will get exactly the outcome that the scripture tells you to. Deities are consecrated, how temples are built. It is in the Agama traditions, some of the Agama traditions are documented, some are oral traditions that are passed over generations. But if you were to follow each one of them, you will actually get the outcome. How do you get it? You harness a certain energy in nature uh, and you get the designated outcome. And once the, the other element of temple, and this is something that I said in the, earlier in the presentation, is once consecrated, how do you keep the energy going? And so there is a set of rituals that say that, alright, this is how you keep the energy going. These are the kind of pujas, you repeat it. You do the, the, the chief, in this particular case, the tantri, in other places, the chief priest will have to do these on a repeated basis. Uh, and so, therefore, you keep the energy going and then, then, then of course, there is the 12-year reconsecration process. But these are meant to preserve energies, the rituals, uh, the consecration, the, the what they describe as Shuddhi Karan. So, we view it as purification, but it's not really as if the energy has got dirty. It's just got muddled. So, you basically make it purer once again. So, it's not, you say, purification or Shuddhi Karan, it's not as if filth has occurred over there. That's not the idea. The idea is that that energy which was earlier functioning at 100% has now become 70. How do you sort of clean up that 30 back and bring it back to 100? A Sabri Mala again follows many of these principles. 
So, tantric tradition essentially is, it does not talk about a creator god. There is no, creation does not happen in that particular fashion. So, it, it is a play of energy that and it is very detailed as I said, anybody that is interested should read uh, Serpent Power, Arthur Avalon. Uh, but it is an energy tradition and how it describes how creation happens, how the universe comes into existence, how individuals come into existence, how humans come into existence, what are the energy elements over there and therefore, how can we reproduce it in inanimate objects. How can we also reproduce it in human beings and individuals? So, you will find throughout India the tradition of individuals actually invoking and they will say Devata Agya. So, that is you, you sort of drawing that energy by a certain process into yourself. Similarly, you can draw the energy into a uh, certain material. Again, it is not as if you can bring that energy into all kinds of material. So, tradition will also specify specific kinds of material for specific kinds of energies. So, Shivalinga would ideally come from the banks of Narmada or from the Narmada. There are certain very specific materials that are prescribed for some of these and that is how the sort of the, the tradition works. I describe it as Tantri and I use the term Tantric tradition here a little more because the Sabri Mala is a Tantric shrine. It is not a Vedic shrine. So, do not carry your Vedic ideas or it is not an Advaitin shrine. So, do not carry the Advaitin ideas into the Shabri Mala. That is what the Supreme Court has done in its ruling. Is that it is carried these other ideas uh, into this particular tradition. It is not and as I said, this is not a faith tradition. So, the Tantric tradition is not, you do not have to a belief. If you put sugar in milk, it will become sweet, it will not become salty. So, it is not a faith tradition, you do not have to believe, oh please, please, please let it become sweet. You do not have to do that. You can be completely God agnostic, you can just pick sugar, put it in, it will become sweet. So, it really follows a certain factual principle, excepting you have to be careful that you do not pick salt and put it into the sugar and expect it to be sweet. So, you are going to follow exactly what is prescribed and if you do follow that, you will get exactly the outcome. And so, therefore, the tradition actually follows this, uh, the whole modern construct is of belief, you must have belief, you must have faith, bhakti ke saath jao, all this bhakti and all is exists and is a good thing, but it is not part of the basis on which this particular temple has been consecrated. There are a whole host of interesting arguments, some of these I have sort of alluded to when we were walking through the presentation, uh, but that is the Supreme Court's approach. If any of you want it, I am happy to share this presentation, uh, but certain arguments that were made by the board, by the tantris, etc., specifically over here. How the court approached it, again, as I said, it approached it from the perspective that there is a creator God who teaches, who, who treats all human beings equally. The Hinduism is a religion that does not discriminate uh, and there are no essential features of the Hindu of Hindu of what is called Hinduism which will get distorted if this practice is discontinued. Uh, there was one other element and I think I should sort of speak of it and this is a very specific legal argument is one of locus is a who can come and challenge the tradition. I think one of the judges specifically gets into it, another judge said that locus is irrelevant because you have to see the law has to operate in some sense of isolation was the argument. So, he, he does recognize it, but he pushes it aside. Another judge, the dissenting judge actually takes locus to its logical conclusion and says that a non-practitioner cannot question a certain set of practice. So, just like you would not allow and just like the Supreme Court recently did not allow a whole host of Hindus challenging uh, tradition in a mosque. Similarly, you do not just because they are called Hindus, you do not allow them to challenge traditions that they actually are not followers of. Um, and that is the whole locus argument. Um, I do not think you should deal with it only on the locus argument, but the locus argument is also very, very relevant from the perspective of just the relativity example that I was giving is that there is no way that you can fully appreciate what a passenger sitting in a train playing with a ball experiences, he actually experiences a ball which is lobbed up and down going in a straight line, whereas in a moving train you see it going in a parabolic fashion. And 
therefore if you are not in the tradition you simply cannot appreciate it uh, and which is where locus becomes uh, relevant there are some i said there were some arguments in court which diluted the whole flavor of the manner in which it should have gone so there have been deviations in practice so when we say 41 day vratam now somebody suddenly says that all right you can do vratam for 2 weeks you can do vratam for 6 days now these are all deviations and my view is if a woman in menstruating age is capable of desecrating a temple so can a man who does not follow the 40 day one 41 day vratam desecrate the temple you cannot have for sake of convenience start playing around with it you cannot because you can't go to the shop and buy sugar use salt to make kheer so it will result in desecration and really that is uh, something that we need to be more and more mindful about that's all that i had for you in the presentation thank you and if you have any questions please feel free to fire away <laughs>